everybody. I'm Gilad. Today we have Michael DeBolt with us. Hello, Michael. How are you? Hi, Gilad. Hi, everybody. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. Mike, so I asked you for your title, but I think that I feel more comfortable of you presenting yourself because you'll do it much better than me. What do we agree on? Master of coin? That we said yeah, overseer of all? <laughs> <laughs> Empire uh, of the universe. Right? That's I like right. this title. Go wild. <laughs> that's right. Unfortunately, that, it's not that cool. Is that um, also on LinkedIn? That's right. Well, I need to change it. I need to change <laughs> it to reflect the most, most accurate title. No, I'm... Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate the conversation here. And yeah, so I'm Senior Vice President of Global Intel at Intel 471. I've been here for almost four years now. For those of you who don't know or haven't heard of us at Intel 471, we're the premier provider of cybercrime intel. So we're primarily focused on um, financially motivated cybercrime, really across the adversary and, and malware space is what we do. We've got boots on the ground, globally dispersed researchers who are using sources to get the latest and greatest from underground actors. And we have a headquartered analyst team who kind of puts the pieces together. We've got a malware intel team and also a, a collection management team who serves as like the nexus point between our clients and the rest of our intel apparatus. And my role is really to oversee the whole thing. I get an awesome vantage point to kind of oversee and help guide the strategic vision across the whole global intel effort. Yeah, my background is primarily law enforcement and counter intel in the national security space, both as a practitioner and from a strategic perspective, focusing primarily on cyber criminal and nation state activity. And just, just prior to coming into Intel 471, I was the head of cyber intel at Interpol in Singapore, which was an interesting experience for about two years. Did that. And then previous to that, I was a special agent with NCIS, the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, where I, I did cybercrime and counter-intel operations and investigations. So that's just a quick nutshell. That's who I am and where I came from. Happy to be here. Thank you. That's a lot to unpack. And we're probably not going to dig deep into every single <laughs> item on, on your resume. But I, I think probably looking at your background and going back to how you started as a professional, I mean, you've been working in cybercrime intelligence for a while, but you, you started as, as a scout. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I was an infantry scout in the Marine Corps, which I didn't do anything infosec or technology related at all. I was just carrying around big guns and shooting them and looking at a map all day long, which was fun. My first foray into anything technical was I carried around this big bulky box. It was used for encrypting our radios. So I was our radio guy. I would go around to each one of the radios at the Humvee and changed the encryption keys. And it was literally just an instruction book that they came along with that said, this is the keys that you need to press. Uh, <laughs> it didn't really take a whole lot of mental capacity to do it. But that was kind of my first looking back, you know, that was kind of my first foray into anything technological and kind of piqued my interest. How does this stuff work? Why is, what am I actually doing when I'm pressing the keys on this thing? And really sparked an interest for me. And maybe your first appreciation for what uh, collecting intelligence, reconnaissance, what, what it can bring to any kind of operation is that do you see, do you see patterns between what your first involvement in, in scouting and reconnaissance work and, and what you're now doing many, many years later? Do you still rely on um, some of the instincts or do you see any parallels between the two? Yeah, absolutely. So I was a scout for the tanks. My number one job was to go ahead in front of the tanks 
our motto was our weapon was our radio. I'm like, I'd actually like a bigger gun. I'd like a gun to be (laughs) our main weapon, but I get it. Our main weapon is our radio so that we can report back kind of the situational awareness of where the enemy is, where the enemy is going to be, and really providing that situational awareness back to the the people in the back who needed to, you know, the commanders and the people who are making the decisions and taking the actions that would ultimately navigate how the war is going to play out giving them the situational awareness of where the enemy is at. And I definitely see parallels to that kinetic space and to what we're doing here in, in the cybercrime world and InfoSec. And Threat Intel specifically, a big part of what we do as Threat Intel providers and as practitioners is to provide that situational awareness of the battle space for our SOC team and for our senior management and for anybody else who would be willing to listen to what we have to say about what the enemy is doing out there. So definitely a lot of different domain, right? different battle space, but definitely the, the mentality and the mindset of getting out there and going beyond the wire and understanding what our adversaries are doing and then reporting that back to um, the stakeholders that need to, need to hear that and need a kind of information and input to make their decisions and take their actions. It's definitely fed into what we do here at Intel 471 and how I see threat intel in general, for sure. It's pretty fascinating to hear like the story about how you first kind of see yourself interested in what you probably going to be in the future back in your pretty different role in in the in the army, right? But I mean, did you ever like imagine how would your career kind of evolve into what you're doing today? Could you like see yourself doing such things in the future or what did you imagine back then when you had some interest in what does, does these uh, keys do on the radio? Yeah, when you yeah. that's interesting. I don't quite often think about that. I mean, that was over 20 years ago. Well, not quite 20 years ago, but it was, it's a long time ago. So it's interesting to kind of look back on, in hindsight, what my thought pattern was back then. And I, I don't think I put together the pieces of what I wanted to be when I grew up and wanted to be after the Marine Corps. I actually, at one point, wanted to be a dog trainer, a dog handler, which has <laughs> obviously been a completely different life choice and career choice for me. And so at some point, I, I consider myself pretty fortunate and blessed and lucky to be able to, at a very early stage in my career, to say, this is what I want to do and really have been given the opportunity and the chances by people along the way to do, to really realize that goal. I mean, I set out, said I wanted to be a federal agent and I wanted to track cybercrime actors and nation state sponsored actors who were targeting our national defense assets. And I ended up being able to do that. So I was always, always interested in the, the marrying of law enforcement and justice with technology and the intersection of those two. So when I had the opportunity to have the job at NCIS and do cybercrime investigations, it was just like a dream come true for me. How that translated into threat intel later on, I think that was just years of just tracking bad guys. And then as the commercial space evolved and you started seeing threat intel teams really embracing the doctrinal approach that the IC, the intel community uses, and you have teams that are being created within retail and and financial services that kind of emulate and mirror what's going on in the government. It just kind of made sense to move into that direction after my government experience, be able to use those skills and apply them in the commercial and private sector. That must be incredibly addictive to be 
in those roles and so close to so close to the front lines where you really feel like you're combating these people directly. How do you pull away from that, from this rush and then work in the private sector? Is it that you feel you're in an environment that's probably more agile, that allows you to, to track these people more effectively? Or is it just a natural career evolution? But I, I'm just wondering how people can pull away from this, really, because it must, be, must feel like a drug to be this close to it and on the side of the good guys, at least. Yeah. I mean, the level of access and information that you get when you work in the government and the IC and law enforcement is unparalleled. You're not going to get that level of access typically when you're working in the commercial and private space. So handling the top secret information and the, the classified information and obviously going and hitting a bad guy with a stick and kicking the door down and apprehending a bad guy, you're obviously not doing that in the private sector. So there is definitely a rush to being able to do that. But I will say that you know, I want to wake up and do something compelling every day like everybody else does. I want to do something that's impactful. And what's great about our industry is that I think we've evolved to the point where government and law enforcement have realized the impact that private sector can have. As information providers, working directly alongside and locking arms with the private sector to realize some of those goals that only law enforcement can achieve based on their authority, but they may not have the ability or the insight that the private sector has to do that or the capability. I see it's what we do as a force multiplier for law enforcement who are limited in some of their language capabilities that they have, their access, some of the places that our researchers have access to is very, very difficult for law enforcement to access on their own. And so we have great partnerships across law enforcement and government space where we help them with that, to provide them access to that. And so while it's different working from government in private sector and the type of access that we have in the 40s and stuff, I've found it equally and in a lot of ways more compelling to work in the private sector just because of the reach and the, the flexibility that we have. I still like to hit bad guys with sticks, though, if I could. <laughs> Who doesn't? Not literally. For all the audience that might be listening, I'm not literally talking about hitting them with sticks, but just, you know. Oh, I meant that literally. Make them a little uncomfortable. Virtually, you can virtually try to. Virtually hit them with a yeah. stick. Yeah, there you go. It's very interesting uh, what you're saying, Mike. And I was thinking, you said that the public sector, and I'll phrase it in my words, so it's not a quote, I don't think so. Practically, the government or in the public sector worldwide kind of understand the power and uh, the strengths that the private sector, the high-tech industry, uh, specifically the cyber threat intelligence vendors, can provide them when fighting the bad guys and practically defend uh, their perimeter, defend uh, country and, and nation's networks, and, and kind of understand the threats that they are facing. I think that it goes both ways. It's not that it's only the vendors, but let's also think about the huge progress, so to speak, that cyber criminals has made over, over the years, right? Like, I mean, the dark side, not only the ransomware gang, but also like the, the dark side as a whole made such a huge progress and development uh, itself over the last several years, specifically, you know, ransomware. When you speak about ransomware, profit these days and you kind of compare the number of incidents you had like 10 years ago and the profit they made nowadays, it's, it's mind-blowing. You think it's also made governments understand that it's no longer 
a small problem and we need to use bigger guns to actually cope with it? Yeah, I think so. And I think they're having a hard time. They're grappling a little bit with the... I think that there's definitely a recognition that we need to get a handle on just generally cybercrime and protection of critical assets, protection of our industry and of the consumers and our people. I think it's a hard nut to crack. I mean, our government is having a hard time grappling with what to do about, let's just say, ransomware, for instance. You know, on one hand, we see the U.S. Treasury coming out late last year and with an advisory basically reminding U.S. private sector that if you conduct ransomware payments and you allow that to go to a sanctioned entity, that just a reminder, you might be fined. And, and of course, that doesn't bode well with victims of ransomware who are already dealing with a lot of the pressure that goes with being a ransomware victim. Now you have to do double check whether the, the operators behind that ransom, particular ransomware group are indeed on the sanction list, which in some, a lot of cases, you're just not going to know. So we have that back in October, but now recently we've had the government come out and say, we recognize the criticality of ransomware and how it's disrupting everyday life in a lot of the different areas that we operate in. We're now going to consider this as a, in the same light, in the same vein and category as terrorism, as counterterrorism. And that invokes a number of different things in the government in terms of information sharing and how they approach some data collection aspects of um, how to tackle this stuff. So I think those are two ends of the spectrum, really. You're, on one hand, you're saying we're going to increase the pressure on you victims of ransomware, right? And I know that probably wasn't the intent, but it's definitely kind of the outcome of putting an advisory out like that is that you're putting victims on notice. And I think it's in a lot of respects, it's a 180 from then till now, which is now we're going to, with the recent colonial pipeline, you know, them going out and, and seizing, I think it was two point something million dollars, which is almost half of the full ransom demand, working collaboratively with the victim and, and making that happen. I think they've realized that they need to work more, more collaboratively with victims and give them an easier path to, to report some of these things and really work together with them rather than kind of put the thumb of the government down on victims and threaten them with sanctions and, and fines, right? So I think that's just stepping back, looking at the different messaging that we're getting from our government. They recognize, to your point, they recognize it's, a, it's pervasive and it's a problem, but they're grappling with how to solve it. If I can just put another comment in there, I think ultimately they're realizing that they need the help for the private sector to do that across the board because we're the front lines, right? We're going to see the new variants come to market. We're going to see the new ransomware families coming out and producing their blogs and they need our input. They need our eyes and they need our ears going back to the original scout conversation we're having, right? We're the ones who are in the front. And so they need to be able to rely on our input and our feedback to give them an understanding of what's going on in the, in the battle space. It's very interesting. I was also thinking about the analogy between cybercrime incidents and terrorism. When we speak about terrorism and any kind of uh, physical threats on nations. Typically, democracies or Western world countries won't rely on, you know, I'm not sure about the word, but like paid army. Like they use their own army and they have uh, paid, of course... Uh, uh, mercenary. Mercenary. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like they pay companies for weapons for sure, 
but they don't pay soldiers who are not their own soldiers, their own country soldiers. But here, when we deal with uh, cyber criminals, I mean, they do understand that this is a very critical issue that requires high-tech and cutting-edge technologies and experts from the, from the private sector. And they also rely on the private sector going into the cyber criminal battlefield, going out there, engaging with the cyber criminals, negotiating with them, or just getting their data in some manipulative ways. They practically rely on the private sector's expertise, right? Yeah, I would say so. And we've seen an evolution of that over the past 10 years where government has really created the space for that collaboration and that input from private sector. I want to see more of it. It needs to happen. How far do you think we are from having a much more codified cyber warfare and much clearer rules of engagements? Right now, there are lots of governments that are asking themselves when they suspect and when they can prove and when they can attribute that another nation is, is trying to hurt them not necessarily directly kill people, but indirectly, indirectly they're killing people. And I'm not even talking about ransomware on, on healthcare that sometimes have direct relations with the death of someone. But when you're affecting a supply chain, creating panic, there are dramatic consequences. So how far do you think we are from having, having yeah, codified cyber warfare and better understood rules of engagement and uh, appropriate response to a cyber attack when we can determine the actual source, which is a challenge you don't have in physical warfare. It's hard to imagine a situation where we're close to having a codified list of kind of things that would cross the threshold to being from being cyber espionage, information gathering, collection analysis to cyber war that would indicate, you know, that would provoke kinetic action or political, geopolitical decisions being made based on an incident. You mentioned attribution. A big part of this is attribution, right? And there's no question that, say, ransomware groups are having kinetic effect on hospitals and disrupting oil pipelines. But where the government is struggling and where a lot of people are struggling is the attribution piece, right? And that requires a lot of different data sources, aggregating that, compiling that from the different vantage points to be able to make a confidence assessment of who is actually behind it, right? Who are the ransomware operators that are operating the service aspect of the ransomware as a service versus who are the affiliates who are going in and actually doing the initial access and and popping the victims and then later on using that service to conduct the ransomware event itself. I mean, that's a kind of a tricky thing to figure out in terms of attribution, right? And really, up until the point where it has any kinetic effect, like shutting down a hospital or shutting down a critical infrastructure. Really, we're just talking about, in a lot of cases, financially motivated activity. I mean, that has no little to no state-sponsored backdrop to it, right? We're just talking about people who are going after money. I know there's maybe some back-end enablement that countries might just, they they know what's happening within the confines of their their country, and they're just going to let it happen. I would consider that state-enabled activity, not necessarily state-sponsored activity. They know it's happening, um, but they're just not going to do anything about it. So it's a tricky subject. And I think a lot of it has to do with attribution. And then I think we can set the line. We say, you start shutting down hospitals, you start shutting down pipelines, then as long as the attribution is there and it's clear that this is indeed coming from a state-sponsored entity, then 
that's going to get us closer to what's the word that you use? The uh, cyber war, right? Yeah, the, codified cyber war. Codified cyber war. Yeah. Sort of a, not a Geneva Convention, but on, yeah, sort of a, an agreement as to what, what constitutes a direct assault on another country. Because you can have very strategic strikes with physical warfare and, and you can as well with cyber warfare but very often there there's a lot of collateral damage lots of civilians are impacted if you're looking at mentioned colonial pipeline sure there's the government bears a cost and some entities bear a cost but this could have turned very ugly for a lot of civilians who are completely disconnected from um, from the companies and, and the governments who were targeted right i think this is an important topic and when we talk about cyber war, war is between two nations, right? Two sovereign nations. And so that's why attribution is key. And that's why it's so difficult. I think with some of the adversarial nations that the US would consider pretty traditionally adversarial, China, Russia, others, right? They make they purposely make the attribution part difficult and they muddy the water. I'm wondering what advice you could give as an intelligence professional, and I mean that in, in its purest form, meaning you handle or you collect through other people lots of information and you curate that information and you help your clients make decisions, but you also, as a leader, make decisions based on secondhand information, information that you don't have access to directly yourself. So you rely on, on your team members and, and on other people. And that's the position of any leader in any industry, regardless of the quality, the type of decision he has to make. And I'm really wondering, as an intelligence professional with your experience, what advice might you give a leader who needs to rely on his peers or on his trusted advisors or in the case of a CEO of the rest of the C-suite to be able to not only trust but rely on that secondhand information that needs to be curated to work at speed and at scale. No CEO can be on the field everywhere across an organization, even when it's of a, a small size, how do you ensure that you get the right information, you get unbiased and information that's not been tempered is probably the wrong word, but that's not been manipulated to get you to think or to get you to act a certain way, which is always the hardest part, you know, whether you're a general or, or a CFO <laughs> or a CEO. Sure. And that's, that's something that would keep me up at night as a leader. How do I make sure I'm presented with <laughs> a curated but unadulterated information sure. or unbiased information? Uh, yeah, it starts with trust. Two things, trust the people that you brought on board to give you the skinny, to give you the information that you need. There's a reason why we spend a bunch of time scrutinizing CVs, resumes, and why we spend a bunch of time interviewing people. We want the right people on board. Obviously, people who are smart, who are inquisitive, who have this level of curiosity that we want with people that dig into the kind of data that we want them to dig into and extrapolate out from that. But also from a culture perspective, people who are unafraid to tell you the truth, even when you might not want to hear it. And that goes to the other part. So trust your people and genuinely trust them and make sure that they know that you do trust them and that you want to enable them. And then the second thing is approach everything with humility right? So the second that I know what I'm talking about, or I feel like I have everything kind of checkboxed and, and I have it all figured out is a red flag for me. I need to be constantly asking inquisitive, 
thought-provoking questions to the people who are giving me the information that I need to make those risk-based decisions and, and to steer the ship. That in turn is going to create a, a culture of them asking me questions, hopefully, and it becomes more, I'm just going to say harmonious. I, that might sound a little cheesy, <laughs> but oh, it's... that's what it is, right? They're unafraid to ask you the hard questions. You're unafraid to ask them the hard questions. And it's all because there's a common like-minded goal and mission to protect your organization or for us as a vendor to be the premier cybercrime provider for our clients so that we continuously exceed what their expectations are to get them the timely and relevant information that they need. Everybody on my team is on the same page with that, using their different skills, their backgrounds, all in concert with one another to reach that end goal. So establish the mission and establish the vision up front, trust your people and approach everything with humility, assuming that you're not the right, smartest person in the room because you're probably not. At least that's for me. I had a question about threat intelligence as a whole. I know that these are always the, maybe the hardest questions, but I'll ask it anyway. There are so many different directions in which this industry is going to, and uh, many vendors are doing uh, many different things and trying to maybe invent the wheel in many different ways. But um, at the end of the day, I think that the vendors, or, or at least the ideas that are going to kind of cope with the flood of information and make it easy on the client to filter out the noise and focus on what's best for them to to actually take uh, take action upon might be the best vendors of, of threat intelligence in the future. Still, I, I want to ask you on your aspect on the future of, of threat intelligence. I mean, it might be easier to forecast nowadays than it maybe used to be a few years ago when there was like lack of information and many of the vendors were only in their early stages. Maybe it's not that easy yet, but what would be the, the key, I don't know, aspects or takeaways for future threat intelligence? What do you think about it? Yeah, kind of a loaded question. I think there's a lot to that, honestly, and a lot of good things to that. I think cybersecurity in general is realizing that threat intel can be a force multiplier for them as a SOC lead, as a fraud lead in my organization, a fraud team lead, I can use threat intel as my eyes and ears, which is, by the way, that was our motto in the Marine Corps when I was a scout, eyes and ears. want to be the eyes and ears, forward thinking, forward observer, right? I think the traditional cybersecurity and infosec world is realizing that threat intel can be their eyes and ears. Long gone are the days of just waiting for attacks to hit our attack surface for us to care about them, especially when we think about some of the more recent supply chain events that have happened with solar winds and some of the other ones. We can't just sit back and wait for our network defense systems and our perimeter to pick up on attacks, right? We have to be forward thinking, or if I'm using government slang, it would be left of boom, right? <laughs> Which I hate that, by the way, but I'm, <laughs> I, think a lot of, I, I think a lot of people resonate that. Left of boom. Well, for Intel can get us left of boom. What is 
impacting might not be impacting me right now, but what is impacting my others in my within my own industry, for instance? Who are the main actors out there that are operating these ransomware groups and where did they come from? Uh, what is new and emerging that I need to be aware of, both from a technology perspective and just modus operandi of actors? This whole double and triple, I know we're talking about ransomware a lot, but I think it's important, right? What are the double and triple extortion tactics that ransomware actors are using right now? That that didn't just come up all of a sudden. I mean, that's been an evolution over time that ransomware operators have built into their service offering for affiliates to use. So Threat Intel is about getting coverage over those spaces, understanding, having an intimate understanding of who those actors are, how they operate, understanding the interdependencies of, of how the cybercrime environment and the ecosystem works so that we can find pain points and identify where we can provide that information to our SOC team and our fraud team so they can take action, find controls and gaps within our, our organization to, to mitigate those things. And I think there's a reckoning of sorts where Threat Intel is becoming more and more valued by those traditional cybersecurity teams as those eyes and ears. I think that's the next evolution. I think it's just going to keep growing and growing and growing the need and the want for those eyes and ears, the threat intel practitioners to be that for our traditional InfoSec teams. Does that answer your question? It does. Yeah. I like the answer and I must say that I pretty agree with it. And I was thinking while you were speaking about the growing demand for threat intelligence, about all these traditional smaller companies that used to have only a small IT department and all of the sudden when you see not only ransomware attacks all over, but also other kinds of intrusion attempts, successful ones taking place by exploitation of many different vulnerabilities and malware attacks, phishing attacks, vishing, and you name it. It's kind of fascinating to see these small companies as well getting on board of threat intelligence or relying on a external third party for that, like on, a, on outsourced threat intelligence or even building their own expertise for that. It kind of proves the fact that this is real and companies, the, the whole private sector finds huge value in it. Yeah, and you mentioned, you talked about data sources too. You made a comment about that. And I think that's important to jump on because in our interconnected world, we're just going to experience more and more data sources, more volumes of data at our disposal for intelligence gathering and collection and having to parse through that. Some might say that's a bad thing. We want to limit the number of data sources that we have access to so that we're limiting the noise floor. I actually look at it the opposite way. I think you increase the number of data sources that you have and then you use automation. I'm going to go ahead and say machine machine learning and AI. Yeah, uh, I wanted you to come up. <laughs> <laughs> not really my thing, but I do understand it has a place in what we do. But you use that on the front end and to triage and to automate some of the more low-hanging fruit type stuff. And then and then you use human beings as analysts to provide that contextualization that no system or, or uh, machine is going to be able to provide. I mean, the more data sources, the better caveat with machine learning and, and AI and a cadre of human analysts that can interpret that data and provide it to the stakeholders who need, need it in a timely and relevant fashion. Yeah. 
So it's pretty interesting because still, when you make huge progress with technology-enabled product, you still have to have a very good team that is able to work with the information and also to make sure that it develops correctly and answer the client's needs that evolve all the time. The, the use cases change, the attacks the surface changes, new threats come up and all the time. A new social media platform, for example, can all of a sudden grow a new kind of threat that you haven't thought about before. And then you need to develop this new technology that answer this as well. So it's kind of fascinating. And this is also what I like about this, this profession, I guess. Yeah, it's not going anywhere. I'll tell you that. And I think cybersecurity and InfoSec is, is better off with a robust and professionalized threat intel community. And we're there already. I fully believe it but we can always optimize and get better as a community and as individual threat intel teams within our own, or our own organization, within our own organization, <laughs> and as vendors as well, being responsible for providing the threat intel to our clients and being held accountable to do that. So, I mean, that's a question we often ask because of the well-documented and well-known shortage of talent, but how challenging is it for you to recruit people? And um, it's a question I asked before, but uh, <laughs> not to you. If you had to repurpose people from another profession to turn them into intelligence professionals, intelligence analysts, outside of the obvious law enforcement, military intelligence, where, which talent pool would you select people from, from other professions? Yeah. So something that immediately comes to mind is as a threat intel analyst, you could be really technical. You could be really good at aggregating, compiling information and analyzing it and coming up with an assessment on your own. But it takes another set of skills to convey that and communicate that to the stakeholders who may, be, may not be aware of the technical details and just might need to know the so what of what is the second and third order of effect of this piece of malware that you've just detailed for me or this campaign that we've seen or our industry has seen? What, what is this telling me in terms of business risk? So as an analyst, that takes two different skill sets, technical analysis, and then being able to convey that and articulate in that way that's easily consumable to your stakeholders. And so one of the professions that I can see translating well into that is journalism and bringing people who have reporting and public facing reporting and journalist backgrounds into that space who may have a technical aptitude because uh, that's a difficult thing to teach. Distilling technical reporting, subject matter reporting into something that C-suite or even a stakeholder, a tech, more technically focused stakeholder would be able to extrapolate out the so what behind mm -hmm. that, right? The editorial skills, but also the investigative mind, the natural curiosity that attracts people to, to journalism. It feels like they, they're they sort of doing, if you remove the technical aspects, they're sort of doing the same job. You know? Yeah. Well, a good analyst is somebody that's asking a lot of questions, saying, here's what we do know about this. Here's what we don't know about this. And of the things that we don't know, where do we need to go get that information? so that we can cover those gaps. And a reporter does all those things, right? When mm -hmm. they're preparing for a story. 
what do you think is the most fascinating thing about being a cybercrime investigator? Because you saw it from both like the public sector and the private one in different roles. So what's the most fascinating part about it? What do you like it? Well, I love this job. So I think there's a number of things that fascinated me about what we do in general. But if I had to narrow it down to one thing, I would say the psychology of the human element behind cybercrime and just this ever-changing chess match that we play with the adversary, right? They make one change in their evolution of their malware or their infrastructure or their modus operandi. We try to keep up with that and level the playing field to change it, to report it as threat intel, to report that observation and that state change to our stakeholders internally. And then they make a change. And then the adversary notes that because they've been disrupted. And so it's just this never-ending, changing chess match game that we play with humans behind the keyboard. Because really, that's what it is. I mean, take away all the malware and the technical aspects of what people are doing, all the tooling. What we're talking about is people behind keyboards who are trying to outwit and outsmart each other. And that fascinates me. And I think when you think about our problem set in that light, it adds a color to it that helps you kind of get in front of what people might be thinking about how they're developing their tools and what might what could be coming next could be helping your predictive assessments about what could be helping next because we're all humans and we all think somewhat alike. And if we can tap into that, I think the better off and you will be as an analyst. Just uh, as you mentioned, the psychological game, I had a, I'm just wondering, you've been doing this for 10 years now. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 The cyber, I mean, threat intel piece, yeah. Yeah. And following cybercrime and dealing with threat actors, maybe under... Yeah. Using use indirectly, they don't necessarily know you as you, who you are. But uh, right. I'm just wondering if you've seen, as we've seen, obviously uh, an increase in, I mean, a lowering of the barrier to entry. I think to some extent, and the the accessibility of powerful tools and capabilities as a service and all that. It's it's been lowering the barrier to entry. We've also seen threat actor groups becoming incredibly professional. Almost, I mean, there are corporations with customer service and accounting and they're incredibly sophisticated but have you seen a change in, in the sociology or, or the demographics of, of threat actors meaning are we talking about the same people who've matured over the past 10 years or do you feel like you're dealing with a different set of people just this is attracting people who are much more sophisticated maybe from different backgrounds more highly educated is there you know are they older are there more women that there used to be have you seen major changes in in the people or, or? No, I can't say that I have. I can't say that I've seen significant change. And maybe that's because of the financial motivated aspect of when you're motivated by money and it works, your processes, your business model, your marketing, mm-hmm. your PR scheme, how you recruit other co-conspirators into your conspiracy, how that's been successful, you just don't really change. So really... The whole business model around the cybercrime underground really hasn't changed dramatically over the past 10 years. It's really just been around new and novel approaches 
to doing that, like the rise in ransomware, for instance. And no, but as it evolves, has it been attracting different talents in a way? If we're looking at it as an industry, which it is in some countries, you, you, in, you're born in some countries with a good brain and all the diplomas in the world, you can ask yourself legitimately, is that a path I should take? Because my alternatives aren't that good. And I don't want to you know, keep on, on bashing, keep attacking Eastern Europe or Russia, but I, I'm sure there are certain highly educated people who, who come out with no real opportunities and they're asking a very, very cold question. Is that, is that a career path for me? And as a result of this professionalization, are, are, is cybercrime attracting people it wasn't necessarily attracting in the past? And has that changed the sociology of yeah, I, them as a group? I see what you mean. And I think that what you're touching on is a barrier of entry for cybercrime. I definitely think over the last 10 years, it's become easier. It's become an easier platform for people to get involved in who have, who are already inclined to kind of explore this area. Where can I make an easy buck? How can I get involved in this as soon as possible? There's tutorials and how-to guides scattered all over these forums um, in multiple different languages. So it's while the platforms, they really haven't changed, right? Forums have been around for a long time. We've had the surge in instant messaging platforms over the last three, four, three, four or five years with Telegram and WhatsApp being used for illicit purposes as well. So that's another evolution and made it easier for people to get involved. But I think it's been incremental. I think it's been an incremental evolution of the cybercrime underground that's just enabled people who have maybe a little bit of interest to give them a, an easier barrier of entry to get involved in a very meaningful way. To, to use them as cannon fodder or just to say, well, we, we need these minions as part of our ecosystem, but there is still maybe more of an elitist group of elite cyber criminals who they're sharing enough information to make the power grow and probably distract from what they're doing. But at the same time, they're keeping the doors closed on, on the really good stuff, a bit like the corporate world. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, it mirrors it mirrors any recruitment or any sort of evolution that you would have in your career in a legitimate corporate world too. You get started in academia or a trade school and you just kind of get your feet wet. It's an easier barrier of entry, kind of casting the wide net. Anybody can really join, really. And then you just work your way up and you find ways to increase your reputation through demonstrating your abilities technically and your savviness and your creativity. And then you just start building that reputation and getting engaged in those inner circles when that's where the, the most sophistication happens and where the core development of some of the things like TrickBot and these other major cyber criminal groups and organized groups are operating, right? It's in the very closed and private venues that ultimately experienced cyber criminals will gain access to through invites or through proving themselves. So there is such a thing as, as paying your dues. Yeah, and, but it's a good point. I mean, the barrier of entry is <laughs> as easy as it's ever been, I would say. And it continues to be easy and easier and easier over the years to get involved in this. But the climb must actually take, take longer. It's, it's also become more competitive because we, we, we think about these, these people don't work in isolation. They're competing for resources in a way. They're competing for, they're not competing for budgets, but they're competing for available cash to steal. And yeah, when one cyber criminal succeeds, another fails in a way. Or, yeah, and it's merit, look, it's merit-based. I mean, if you're going to come in and you're, and you're junior, you haven't been in this space for a while, but yet you're going to come in with a, 
you've popped a juicy target and you have Citrix access to a Fortune 100 company, then yeah, you can be part of our group. You got to show that you have it and prove it, but you can be a part of our group. It doesn't really matter how long you've been doing this for. <laughs> you've just proved your worth and you're about to make me a lot of money. So again, it comes back to it's financially motivated. I don't really care how long you've been mm. in the game for as long as you can prove it. And it also helps to speak native Russian as well, right? And some of the other native languages that these forums and instant messaging platforms operate in, you're just not accepted if you, if you speak English. So it's all about money. Show me the money. <laughs> Definitely. Fully financially motivated. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mike, when it comes to threat intelligence, I can speak with you for hours and hours. I feel like it's my um, home field. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Home field? Is that the correct terminology? Yeah. So that's a whole match for me. And I, I really love these uh, topics. But I think we had a really, really interesting conversation. I learned a lot from you and I'm very happy that we had this conversation. I feel comfortable saying that uh, Simon had a good time as well, right, Simon? Very good. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Thumbs up from Simon. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. Likewise, thanks for letting me join you. I'm, I'm humbled that you would invite me to this. And hopefully... Once this pandemic messes over, we can meet up face to face somewhere. One day we'll, we'll manage Looking to record this. To uh, there we go. It's, it's going to increase Live from Texas. It's going to increase our operating costs by quite a bit. But <laughs> that's right. Live from Texas. That's right. We we didn't even and we don't have time to because it would. We could probably talk all day about it, but we we didn't talk about brisket or barbecue or anything like that. Yeah. So maybe that'll no, be part no, no. two. That's more my home field. As, uh, that's right. that's right thanks so much Mike yes thanks guys 